Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You got to understand, these are both words of encouragement as well as a pretty hardcore words of warning when you look at them. As an encouragement, Paul is telling us, he's, he's reminding us that we, as believers, we actually and truly are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells within each one of us. And when we stop and ponder that, that ought to be like almost mind-blowing to each one of us. In the Old Testament, God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Through Jesus Christ's ministry on earth and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that now you and I are considered the temple of God. Today, Pastor David offers both encouragement and warning regarding this incredible truth. This is a privilege and a responsibility. We are not built by human hands, for God has made us and chooses to dwell within us. May your life bring glory to the presence of God that is within you. And here's Pastor David with part one of today's message entitled, Humble Temples. Some of you may have heard the story before. I, I know that I've shared it here with the fellowship before, but it's been, it's been quite a while. It's a story of two brothers, Ronnie and Pete. They're twin boys. They live in a small little Midwestern town. It's a single mom trying to raise two young boys. These two kids are just mischievous to the max. Not bad kids, just really mischievous. Do you know the kind that I'm talking about? Okay, they're always into some kind of trouble, uh, always something going, not, not wicked, not, not vile things, just some kind of ornery things, boy things, okay? And if, you know, I know you girls never got in trouble when you were young, but uh, we boys always did. Because of just the franticness of their mom trying to take care of these two young boys, Ronnie and Pete, uh, she, the, the little church that they went to was just right down the street from their house. And so finally one day she went to the pastor, Pastor Jackson, and asked Pastor if he could help her out some because, you know, there's no man in the house and these boys need to be reined in a little bit. So he told her, sure, just have them come by the office tomorrow afternoon and I'll speak to them. Well, Pastor Jackson, ha- when his his college days, he had been a linebacker. So he's a big old boy. And he had actually added a few pounds since he got into the pastorate. That happens to the best of us. But anyway, uh, as, as the two boys, they knew that they were in trouble. They didn't know for what, but uh, their mom had said, you need to go down and talk to Pastor Jackson. So as the church secretary started leading them into Pastor Jackson's office, pastor stood up from behind his desk, took himself up to his full height, and just kind of a commandeering thing over, over these two young boys as they sat there in the chairs. And so Pastor Jackson looks at these two boys and he says, Ronnie, Pete, where's God? 
These two boys looked at themselves, each other, their eyes as big as saucers, just worried as can be, not knowing what in the world is going on. There's absolute silence in the room for a moment. And then all of a sudden, Pastor Jackson, he, again, with his most demanding voice, he says, Ronald and Peter, where is God? Well, these two boys jumped up from their seats, ran out of his office, out of the church, down the street, ran into their house, passed their mom up the stairs to their bedroom, slammed the door. Their mom's figuring, what in the world did he say to them? What in the world's going on? So she made her way up the stairs, opened up the door. She found Ronnie hiding under the bed. Pete was in the closet, shivering and just scared as can be. And she says, boys, what in the world is going on? Well, finally, Ronnie, as he kind of peeks out from underneath the bed, he says, Somebody stole God from our church, and they think we took him. <laughs> well, the story's funny. It's kind of bad theology, but uh, it is kind of funny. We know that God doesn't dwell in buildings. We understand that. We, we know perfectly well he's not, he doesn't dwell in buildings. As a matter of fact, uh, Stephen, one of the early church deacons and the first martyr for the church, remember as he was sharing the, the truth of the gospel with those that were getting ready to stone him, one of the things that he declared to him, he says, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. And then he quoted from Isaiah and he tells him, as, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all things? And we find the apostle Paul as he's speaking to those there on Mars Hill there in Athens as he's debating with the philosophers about this unknown God. One of the things that he says, God who made the world and everything in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Most of you know that we're looking at the possibilities of building a a building on the property next door. We've still got a a long way to go before that. We're looking at putting in an auditorium as well as uh, uh, room for a new nursery and some preschool and some other classrooms in the deal. And when we think about property, when we think about buildings, a lot of times we can get really confused with the facts and with, with the purpose of what a physical building is all around. We, we realize, you know, it's going to be an extremely huge uh, financial commitment for us as a church, but yet we also know that the Lord is bringing people into our fellowship to minister to. And so the buildings are there simply as a place to use for the purpose of ministry. But God doesn't dwell in brick and mortar. Uh, no matter how elaborate we might try to build it, and we're not, uh, it's going to be pretty simple. Uh, it doesn't matter how elaborate, how ornate it might be. God doesn't dwell in buildings. And if that's true, and it is, then where does God dwell? Look with me tonight as we continue on in our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be beginning down in, in verse 16. We've covered up through verse 15. Paul had explained to the church that we're all going to stand before God's Bema seat, that, that seat of judgment, all of us as believers, where each one of our works are going to be judged. And as he tells us there in chapter 3, whether your works be wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stone, they're going to be judged. They're going to be judged by fire. And what's going to be left are the things that, again, we, we offer up to the Lord. 
now in verse 16, he starts moving into this thought of, of God dwelling within the life of each individual believer. As he speaks to the believers, he declares to them, beginning in verse 16, he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You got to understand, these are both words of encouragement as well as a pretty hardcore words of warning when you look at them. As an encouragement, Paul is telling us, he's, he's reminding us that we, as believers, we actually and truly are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells within each one of us. And when we stop and ponder that, that ought to be like almost mind-blowing to each one of us, that we become the very temple of God, the abiding place of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely amazing the reality that our God isn't far off and disconnected to who we are and what we're going through. No, he actually dwells right with us. He himself determined that by the presence of his Holy Spirit that he would abide within us. It wasn't something that we did. It's something he determined that he would do in the Old Testament. There was that understanding that God dwelt within the Holy holy of Holies there in the tabernacle. And then a little bit later, once the temple was, was built, that the Shekinah glory of God, that almost like a cloud, whatever it might've been, that glory of God filling that place, the very presence of God. And all of Israel knew that if they made it to the temple, if they made it to that location, there was a great presence of God and the power of God was there. But now in these times, he dwells in and among the people of God, those that are known as the church. That's you and I. Now, this may come to a shock for some of you, and maybe not for some of you, but particularly for some, maybe at some other churches, but the Spirit of God does not dwell in just one particular church or one particular denomination. Again, for all believers, he's within the lives of all believers, and yet never more as when we come together as the body of Christ. And hopefully you realize, actually, it's only when we come together, that's really when we become collectively the church. Do you realize that you yourself on your own, you are not the church? You are a part of the church, but you are not the church. That's why it's important for you and I to come together as the church. That's why Lone Ranger Christians, well, I don't need to go to church. Church has disappointed me all my life. I'm just going to stay home, have my own little worship time. I'm going to have communion with myself. And, you know, um, that, that's just absolutely ridiculous. There, there's no theological doctrinal basis for that at all. As a matter of fact, theologically and doctrinally, it tells you just the opposite. No. You've got to be with like-minded believers. What does the word say? Wherever two or more are gathered, I'll be there in your midst. It's important that we understand that. It's important that we realize that we are part of the church, but in and of ourselves, we are not the church. 
Now, you're going to find that concept of God's abiding presence over and over again in the writings of Paul. And here we see it in 1 Corinthians in several places, over in chapter 6, and he speaks about, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, Paul is driving this thing home, time after time after time in his writings. We are the temple of God. Our bodies, it is important to understand that, uh, again, the abiding place of the Holy Spirit within our lives. And God takes that serious. He takes it very serious when he acknowledges the fact that you as a believer, the Holy Spirit of God is abiding within you. So God doesn't dwell in temples or beautiful cathedrals. The encouragement that Paul gives is, is, no, he dwells within the hearts and the lives of those that are his, those that call upon his name. Now, here in chapter 3, along with that encouragement comes that warning. He reminds us, uh, again, of these, uh, these dire consequences of, of, of defiling the holiness of the temple of God. Matter of fact, what does he say there in, in chapter 3? He says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will what? Destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, beloved, I don't care what way you slice it or dice it. That's a pretty heavy statement. God will destroy him. Another uh, definition of that word that's used for destroy is he will uh, injure him. He will corrupt him. He will do damage to him. It's that whole idea. Now, the Greek word is the same in both parts of the sentence. If any man destroys or corrupts or defiles the temple, God will destroy or corrupt or defile that one. The one thing we do need to understand, though, he's not talking about total annihilation. But again, the apostle uses that word with such a strong word to again express the seriousness of this whole issue. The whole idea of this defilement is understood by what uh, Albert Barnes shares with us in his commentary. He says, the truth here stated is based on the fact that the temple of God was sacred unto the Lord. This is a very special place to the Lord. The temple was holy. He says, and if any man subsequently destroyed it, it might be presumed, presumed that God would destroy him. The figurative sense is, if any man, by his doctrines, his precepts, or even by his actions, shall pursue such a course as tends to destroy the church, God will severely punish him. But yet at the same time, we need to see it within the context of who Paul is writing to. Who is Paul writing to here, beloved? Is he writing to non-believers or to believers? He's writing to believers. You need to bear that in mind because of what he says. In the context of what he's sharing, so far in chapter 3, he's speaking of a believer in some way destroying the church, God's temple, by creating, even as he said earlier up in verse 3, through envy and strife and divisions, he says, God will destroy him. And I believe, again, within the context, it's a temporary judgment 
that awaits the believer that creates those kinds of divisions within the church because the temple of God is holy, which temple you and I are. So what am I trying to say here? There's a lot of attacks against the church. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not. There are attacks from the outside as the, as, as the world, as, as Satan himself, as, as an atheist, as non-believers come and attack the church, continually trying to cut away at the very foundation of your faith and the reason for your faith. The world is trying to destroy it on a regular basis. Our society and the way that our society goes by trying to be politically correct is actually working at destroying the foundations of God's word. And if the foundations of God's word are destroyed, guess what? The church is destroyed. Because again, beloved, this is where our found, Christ is our foundation. I understand that. But the word of God is that that again sets for us that plumb line, gives for us the instruction, the disciplines, the, the growth that we need. And if the word of God is destroyed, then the church has nothing at that point in time. And so the world and our society are trying to destroy that. But also on the inside, you realize that on the inside, there are those that are trying to destroy the church. We read that throughout the letters to the churches. Paul says that uh, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, I believe it's chapter 25 in the book of Acts, as he meets them on the shore, and he's telling these, these elders of the church of Ephesus, he says, hey, there's going to be some of you that rise up as false teachers. You're going to destroy the church, to seek to destroy the church. Even from within, the murmurings, the complainings, the fightings, the backbitings, the envying, the strife, and all these divisions among you. That's what Paul is fighting against here. Remember when we were at that point as we were studying through here, he came into this church, or he's writing to this church, because he had heard of all of these divisions that were going on. The biggest ones that were most evident were the ones that said, well, I'm, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Paul, and the other ones, I'm of Christ. And again, they were having these little uh, cliques, these little uh, divisions within the church. And they, they, again, they weren't growing together. No, they were growing apart. And so this is what Paul is writing about here, and we can't separate that from what he says here. He's not speaking about eternal damnation. That was looked at up in verse 15 when he says that, uh, again, if anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You can't separate out one portion. You've got to keep it within the context of what he's saying. We need to remain within this discussion. He's speaking to and about believers here. And so he goes on in verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Beloved, I think that all too often we take the church for granted. We don't consider the importance of it within the kingdom of God, this corporate fellowship of believers called the church. I'll be the first to admit, we're not perfect. As a matter of fact, I met with a guy this week that said, hey, my wife and I are leaving. 
This, this church, Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande, has done more damage to our Christian life in the two years that we've been here than any other church that we've been in in 50-some-odd years. And I think, wow, where did that come from? I know that we blow it once in a while, but uh, that's a pretty heavy trip to lay on anybody. I got over it, but I also took it to heart. Okay, what is it that we are doing that we're missing? But you know, it's not just the complaints about a church. It's those that don't take the fellowship of believers, that community, that community of believers serious enough that it really becomes an effective part of their life. If you're on the outside looking in, then the community of the church is harder to be a part of. It's when we come in and we become, again, actively involved within that community that suddenly we start seeing the strength and the power of the church. It's made up of the same people that Paul spoke about back in chapter 1. You'll remember those if you were with us during that study in chapter 1. Those that Paul describes as not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He says, God's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen. The things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. And in the midst of all of those things, not many mighty, not many noble, the foolish things, the unwise, the weak things, the base things. That includes, yeah, even the leadership of the church. So are we apt to make mistakes along the way? Absolutely. But we try to work in the same kind of grace in the leadership that hopefully the body works with each other as, again, we come together as a body of believers. And when we come together, beloved, that's where our strength is as the church when we come together in the midst of our hurts, in the midst of our frustrations, when we come together, the body becomes the encouragement for each other. And again, here at Calvary Casa Grande, we don't make too much of uh, membership. We recognize, again, that believers are, all of us as believers, we're part of that greater, that more complete body of Christ, that universal church. But yet, at the same time, we need to understand who is Paul writing to here He's writing to a local church body. I believe there's an importance in that local church body. There's local issues that are going on with that church that Paul is writing about. And absolutely, now 2,000 years later, we read this and say, wow, that's some of the same stuff that we're going through. Uh, Like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. We're people and we just kind of have the same things. We may have technology a little bit different. We may be running at a faster pace than they were in Corinth, but you know what? The flesh is flesh. We still deal with it. We still deal with many of the same things. The divisions within the church in Corinth were destroying it. The attitudes of the people, these cliques that they were having, the the arrogance of many, the envy, the strife, that carnal attitude or mindset that they had that Paul's dealing with here in chapter 3. All of these things were happening and they were tearing apart, tearing apart from each other and they were tearing apart from true fellowship with Christ because they were allowing these things to control them rather than allowing the Holy Spirit who abides within them to control them. 
And that's what Paul is trying to bring their attention to. Careful, watch out for this. You're going to be destroyed. It's not the wisdom of this age. We need to be a fool for Christ in order that he might teach us, in order that he might work in us. That's all the time we have for today on The Open Word. We hope today's message has touched you. Pastor David Landry will continue teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians on the next edition of The Open Word. But right now, we'd like to share with you how you can hear more from Pastor David. Just visit theopenword.com and click on Teachings to hear or download past messages. You can also get in contact with us with any questions you might have or let us know how we can be praying for you on your faith journey. You can also connect with us on Facebook. We are thankful you've listened to today's message, but want to make sure that this isn't your only source of spiritual nurturing. We encourage you to find a church family who will help you grow in your walk with God. If you're in the Casa Grande area, we'd love to have you join us here at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. Here's Pastor David with more information. Hey, thanks, Chris. I'd like to personally invite you to join us here at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande for a time of worship and fellowship and studying the Bible. We meet every Sunday at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock in the morning and on Wednesday and Saturday evenings at 6.30 p.m. You can find our address and directions by visiting theopenword.com and following the links to our church page. I look forward to meeting you in person and sharing this journey of faith with you. Thanks, Pastor David. That's all the time we have for today. Be sure to tune in next time for another edition of The Open Word.